Richard Leonard, you are an Australian Jesuit and an honorary Irish Jesuit, some would say. You're back in Ireland for a very short visit. And it's the first time you've been back since the um, death of your beloved sister, Tracy. And she was the person who inspired the book, Where the Hell is God?, where you looked at the whole issue of reconciling the problem of suffering with a God who loves us and trying to come to terms with what that can mean in that kind of experience. How has it been since Tracy's death and how has that reflection continued for you? Tracy uh, died on the day after St. Patrick's Day and uh, good Irish stock that we are. In fact, one of her friends said uh, she wouldn't like to spoil St. Patrick's Day for the rest of our lives, Mm -hmm. so she had to wait until the next day to die. Um, But uh, much more seriously, um, her death came rather suddenly, uh, not that we didn't think for the last 28 years that uh, she wasn't going to die earlier than most people would because quadriplegics tend to, but because um, she was um, quite well, quite robustly well, until a week before she died. And she got what she thought was a um, a flu, but in fact it was a very major uh, general infection. And they put her in hospital and um, initially she responded very well to the antibiotic treatment and then she her systems just started to collapse. So she died within 72 hours of uh, being admitted to hospital. So that came as a bit of a shock, I'd have to say. But my mother says that none of us could have wanted her to go on for one more day. And I think that's right. You know, Tracy was washed, fed, turned, toileted and clothed every day of her life for the last 28 years. And I think it would only be a cruel or particularly selfish person who would say, well, you have to keep living because I can't bear to say goodbye to you. So as sad as we've been in saying goodbye and in farewelling her and giving her a great requiem mass and farewell... We've had the opportunity to also celebrate her life and know that she's now at peace and that she's free at last from all the things that uh, her infirmities of the last um, 28 years. Because it was a really, really tough thing to have to bear to be a quadriplegic, unable to do really anything for yourself. For somebody like Tracy, who spent her life before that as somebody who nursed the dying in Calcutta and then who worked with the Aborigine peoples when she came back to Australia. It is something that one is left thinking, like, why somebody so good that something like that would happen to? But I suppose why anybody at all? Yet to the end, she was thinking of the the people who are, are still on the margins. She was, Tracy was very passionate about social justice all her life. And, you know, even as kids, when we were growing up in the house, Tracy was um, very aware of people who didn't have enough to eat and conscious of um, Aboriginal rights long before anybody else of our generation were ever um, talking about it, at least. And that's one of the reasons why she went to India straight after graduating as a nurse in 1981. She wanted to put her nursing skill at the service of um, people who were the poorest of the poor. And in 1981, Calcutta was um, a place where people went from all over the world, including from here in Ireland. And Tracy made very great friends with uh, the nurses who came from Ireland to Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was sort of a magnet in 1981 for people to go and do what they could for the 
poor of India. So she was extraordinary. But because in the last 28 years of being a quadriplegic, she had a lot of time, um, she was probably the best read, the best listened to current affairs addict that I've ever met in my life. She listened to every news broadcast, every opinion piece. She read voraciously. And so she was pretty tough to have an argument with because she also had, she was very bright and had extraordinary retention of facts. So you didn't get away with too many mistakes. But she was very passionate about refugees in more recent years and very angry at a success of Australian government's policies of excluding and she thought being um, quite punishing towards refugees who came to Australia. So much so that in the day before she died, on the Friday, on St Patrick's Day, at one stage she was going in and out of consciousness. Um, I wasn't there, but my brother and other cousins and friends were. And at one stage she regained consciousness and said very strongly and very articulately, um, feed the boat people, feed the boat people, feed the boat people. And this sort of became almost like a symbol that as everybody else in that room was gathered around that bed, absolutely conscious of her needs, she was in her own state already conscious of other people's needs. And it was so typical of her that uh, people would have been wanting to lavish her with love. She was only wanting to lavish other people with generosity and love and goodness. So it was a rather poignant vignette right at the end of her life. Yeah, and a life that even though she actually was so dependent on others and on your mother who looked after her so well, she wrote her book and touched an awful lot of people, even in her own powerlessness. Her book sold tens and tens of thousands of copies. It's a book called The Full Catastrophe. And it um, was written uh, through voice-activated computer programs. And it's primarily about, two-thirds of it is about um, her time with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And then the last third is about her time back in Australia with the Aboriginal people, nursing them and living with them, them becoming her very good friends. And then just the last part of the book is um, about the car accident that left her a quadriplegic. And that book... Um, has gone all over the world and has touched people very deeply, primarily other quadriplegics and paraplegics, who I think found in Tracy somebody that if she could get through this, maybe they could too. So she was a sort of a beacon of hope. But also because I think she was just a resilient person, and I think she was all her life. I think the accident wasn't where she became resilient. It was but another moment to be resilient. And she did that in a very robust way. So... That book gave hope to people and it's been very touching and very moving for my family to hear from so many people, some who travelled to come to her funeral and others who we've only found out through letters and emails that that book gave them hope, it gave them meaning. Um, it also encouraged them to stay in and fighting the good fight when the going gets tough and we all need those stories. So I think she gave the world an extraordinary legacy of at least one person who life paid some very tough cards and the card she played back to such difficult moments was to be hopeful, to be resilient and to be encouraging. And if that's your last will and testimony to what you, then that's a pretty good legacy to leave. And it's a legacy that has other arms to it because there was also your own book that became a spin-off of that, which has helped so many people as well. And a book that couldn't have been written except for what happened to Tracy. 
Where the Hell is God, which is now incorporated and revised and added to through the responses to people from over the years from that book, is now part of your new book, What Does It All Mean? And it gave rise to your other two books, Why Bother Praying and What Are We Doing on Earth for Christ's Sake? Those three books, which are now in this new book of yours, with all the amendments and the index, are really a tribute to Tracy as well. It certainly starts with Tracy. That whole journey started with Tracy. And I always say that I was the luckiest man in the world when my sister had her car accident because I was a Jesuit novice. So I, I had the extraordinary luxury that year and then the following year when I took my vows and now a Jesuit seminarian, scholastic, we say. I had spiritual directors. I had a superior of my community. I had a very loving and supportive Jesuit community. I had uh, confessors. I was sent off to counselling. I had philosophers and theologians with whom I could argue about and rail at times about where a loving God can be found in such a moment. So, But none of that would have happened if Tracy's accident hadn't happened. So while I don't think these things are ever deliberately set up by God, I have no belief that God sat in heaven saying, I want you to be a quadriplegic. The church has always believed in growth through suffering. And I'd have to say that I am a better human being. I'm a better Jesuit and I'm a better priest as a result of my sister's accident because I know glib answers don't work because they didn't work for our family at the time. I know that people who are in pain, while sometimes they want it to go away quickly, it doesn't. And I know the best thing that we can offer people is to be in solidarity and to be in great empathy with people. So the most helpful thing that was said to me at the time of my sister's accident, I've used ever since. A friend of mine said to me, I have no idea what you're going through right now. I could only imagine if it was my sister, how I'd feel. And I want you to know of my love and prayers. And I burst into tears when he said this because he wasn't trying to explain the experience away. He wasn't trying to give me a theological reading or tell me that God had planned this and God's will will be done or any of those things. He was saying... I have no idea what you're going through right now. So powerlessness. And that's how we felt. We were powerless. Um, I could only imagine if it were my sister, how I'd feel. Solidarity. He was wanting to try and understand. And finally, I want you to know my love and flair is just empathy. And that sense of powerlessness, solidarity and empathy is something that I think I hope has shaped my pastoral ministry ever since. And I always think, well, if that line helped me when I was at, you know, a very low ebb, um, spiritually, personally, emotionally, then I've used a variation on it ever since to wonder whether that's something that might help others. And it seems to have. And my own book, Where the Hell is God, then really is that on a long play version, trying then to articulate how do we hold on to a God of love and say hopeful things to one another when bad things happen. And it sold a lot of copies and um, people have been very touched by it, even when they don't necessarily agree with me. They interact with the material, and I'm delighted if they don't agree with me, because that means they're theologizing for themselves, because not one of us has solved the problem of evil, but all of us have to wrestle with it at some stage. And it does provide a framework, even that experience that you've recounted, of an understanding of God that is not a God who is the puppeteer or throwing the dice or wishing evil on anybody, even for good outcomes, but rather a God who did become a human being and who was powerless and who did empathise and just has walked and accompanied 
people who suffer on that road, not explaining the mystery, but at least being part of it. But even more, we, we believe as Christians in a God who was killed. Like we're the only world religion to believe firstly that our God took human form and entered into the human mystery. So the incarnation is the most extraordinary thing to believe in and I think the most wonderful. But secondly, that God died. There's no other world religion that believes their God died. And I find this particularly poignant. I don't believe Jesus came to die, but I believe that he was killed. He was put to death. So humanity kills Jesus and God's response to humanity killing Jesus is to raise him from the dead so that we might all in him know life and life eternal. Now, I find that a wonderful thing to believe because even in the darkest, most desperate moments of my life, I have a God who says, how far will I go with you? I will go to the end and then show you the way out. And that's life in Jesus Christ. So I find that profound, the commitment of the Christian God, Father, Son and Spirit to our human adventure, our human experience is even to go to death and then go through death to offer us life and life eternal. So that's why I have no problem in proclaiming our Christian faith in the contemporary world, because so many people I know and people listening to us right now need that hope. They need to know that God is not sending terrible things from outside of their existence, but God is utterly present inside the experience, because that's the story of Jesus Christ. That's the story of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... And that's something that your mother modelled as well in looking after Tracy because you talked about her having to be turned three times a night for 28 years, well, 27 when she came out of the hospital, but it was your mum who did that and she's now 84. Yes, I wrote them up in my most recent book, What Does It All Mean? And because I give um, stories of saints or holy people who have inspired me uh, in the living of my life. And it looks a bit indulgent, but the last chapter, this was before Tracy died, but the last chapter is dedicated to my family. And I say, you know, this can look indulgent, except my sister's the most resilient person. She has the most reason that I know of most people I've met to be bitter. And yet she was incredibly joyful. She was very engaged. She was very affirming and encouraging. My mother was just utterly faithful. My Our father died when um, we were very young, so he was 36. My mother was a 32-year-old widow with three children, seven, five, and I was two. So mum's had, I think, a pretty tough life, 56 years of age, and then gets a quadriplegic daughter to look after. And as you rightly say, then mum was just utterly faithful to my sister's life and care until the day my sister died on the 18th of March this year. And then the third one is my brother. And, you know, he's just been completely faithful to looking after his sister. Like he would come every day after work to visit mum and Tracy to make sure that they were all okay. And his wife as well, who, to my certain knowledge, even when they had three children under four, uh, never complained and never begrudged that visit every afternoon was first to his mother and his sister and then secondly was to the family home. And I could imagine most days that's okay, but when they're difficult when they're sick when they've got the flu when she's not well you could imagine my sister-in-law blowing her stack and not once does my brother said that she has ever complained now those people then inspire me to be better people because that sense of resilience and sense of 
Bitterness is not the, my response to this. It is in fact to be life-affirming, that utter fidelity and even supporting that fidelity of being a silent operator, like St. Joseph in the Gospels, where he doesn't say a word, but he does so much of utter fidelity to Mary and to Jesus. There have been wonderful challenges to me to be the best Christian person I can possibly be. And it speaks to a different place. I mean, it just is a witness to the heart and not to the head. So whilst we can very often and understandably get caught up in head places around issues like this, which ultimately are not resolvable at a singularly intellectual level, there is another place where they make sense. And when you see that displayed like that, you can only assent to it in that mystery. The other thing I think, uh, Pat, is that it's also about the domestic church. Like we talk about the domestic church, but, you know, that's been my experience of being inspired to live a good Christian life, to be a good Catholic. I didn't have to move outside my home as an adult. I'm 52 years of age now. I'm a priest. I've been with people in extraordinary circumstances, both great happiness and terrible sadness. And yet when I reflected in what does it all mean on who inspires me to faith, hope and love, then for all the other churches I belong to, it's the domestic church, the encounter of God in the daily lives. And I hope that many of our listeners can do that as well. I'm sure they can. It's their uncle and aunt, their grandmother or grandfather, their mum and dad, their brothers or sisters, their children, whom, and sometimes being a parent in being utterly faithful to your child, that this is a breakthrough of God's utter love for the world in and through those wonderful domestic moments, even though they can be very demanding and very painful. Yeah, but I think it's very important that people are helped to see that because sometimes people do live those kind of heroic lives, but they're maybe living them in, in questioning in the kind of patronising way or platitudinal way that you experience, like, what did I do wrong? Why did God do this to me? What did we do to deserve this? Instead of being able to helped to go deeper to make the connection at a much deeper level mm. because they're living it out at that level but sometimes not making the connections and in that regard I'm struck by the question that gave rise to your this new book what does it all mean because that came from a heartfelt place of a, a woman as well and I'm you might tell us that and, and what you was how you responded the titles of all my books come from actual interactions so people think my books are provocative just for the sake of it and they do have provocative titles but I write question mark books although I think I'm finished writing question mark books now I've written four my mother keeps saying um, can we stop asking questions and get some answers sometime <laughs> soon but uh, and I think I'm finished with the question marks now but I wrote question mark books firstly because they don't presume that I'm going to lecture the reader about, oh, I found the answer. Now let me beat you over the head with where I know. A question actually says, let's all explore this together. Now let me start with where I want to come from and where scripture and the tradition and psychology and other things I bring to bear in the books. But it also invites people in to reflect on their own questions and to ask them and for them to wrestle for themselves. The second reason that I use these question marks is they came out of actual conversations. So Where the Hell is God came out of the day that my mother and I found out that Tracy, who had been in a car accident the night before, was now a quadriplegic, could move nothing neck down. My mother, daily mass going, communicant, turned to me and said, um, Where the Hell is God? Now, people often hear the title of that book as very angry, but actually it was just full of grief, raw pain and so it wasn't said in an angry way it was said in just a desolate way the next book was why bother praying and that came out of a man who had read where the hell is god 
and he was going through a terrible time in his own life. And I said, I'll pray for you. And he turned to me and he said, why would you bother praying? So he wanted to pray. And I think he did pray, but he, he didn't think it did anything. Like he wasn't, his prayers certainly weren't getting answer, answered in any way that um, he had hoped. What are we doing on earth for Christ's sake? Came from a conversation with a young man on a plane who um, had read the other two books, Why Bother Praying and Where the Hell is God? And and I recount this story, and it's just a fluke that I could possibly be next to a person on an international flight who had read my books. And he said, I think the problem for my generation, he was then 28, is they don't, they don't answer that fundamental issue of uh, meaning, of what's any of it mean? Like, what are we doing on earth for Christ's sake? And when he said, for Christ's sake, he thought I may have been offended by using the Lord's name in vain. But I reminded him that as a result of our baptism, everything we do is for Christ's sake. And the fact that it's become a throwaway line of people who are frustrated doesn't mean Robert of its original intention. And then the final book in this series, uh, What Does It All Mean?, came from uh, a woman whose child I buried who was run over by a car and the car was driven by another member of that family. And I did that funeral. And after, I remember going back to the house for the wake uh, after the burial. And uh, I said, are you going to be okay? And she's a friend of mine. And and she just turned to me with tears streaming down her face. And she thanked me for doing the funeral and thanked me for helping say goodbye to their one-year-old. And then she um, said, what does it all mean? And it was just so heartbreaking. Like, how can you go on? How can I go on? Well, actually, she's gone on to be a wonderful mother to two other kids and to be a wonderful wife. And she has found some meaning. But I don't think that's the sort of grief you ever get over. I simply think you manage it. I think you just manage that sort of grief. And I do think it tends to become easier for most people, not everyone, but for most people. But I do think that uh, that issue of meaning became the big one. So I put these three books together in that one book, completely re-edited and augmented and changed and revised, and I hope improved, to try and offer a word of hope and a word of light and love when we hit those moments in our life, when not just through trauma and difficulties, but when, you know, aggressive atheists say we're nuts to believe anything or the church just so disappoints us in its criminal or dysfunctional behavior that we get rocked. And then all of a sudden we have to, well, what does it all mean? And then we come back to St. Paul telling us in 1 Corinthians that actually what it all means is to be the most faithful, most hopeful and most loving person possible. And we're living lives like that. We are living in Christ. And finally, as well, I just have to ask you this. That person who ran over the child, to me, that's like a worst nightmare that you would be left with. And that's a relative. Did they manage that? I mean, is that, that would be a question for them too, like to be left with that burden, presumably an accident. I think this family has been extraordinary and uh, I don't write this story up in the book. I think uh, it's not mine to write and uh, I didn't ask their permission even to write it up. But maybe at some future point I might um, reflect on it because that family has been extraordinary. They realised that after that event, charges weren't laid by the police. It was just a freakish accident where the child was playing behind the car and the rear vision light or camera didn't pick up the child because the child was too low, too small, and nobody was there to witness it. It was um, at dusk. Like, there were so many other factors. Now, obviously, 
The person who ran over the child came to the funeral but didn't sit with the family. But we were all very conscious that he was there. They knew there was a period where they just couldn't have much to do with each other. But actually, it was the mother and the father of that child who, after maybe six or seven months of even getting some grief counselling and dealing with their own stuff, knew that it was an accident and knew that if they wanted to hang on to that bereavement and that anger and that um, resentment, that that was going to poison their life as well as they knew that this other person had gone into a terrible depression. So they knew that to to reach out to this guy, to the brother-in-law, was extremely important. And so they did. And actually, the brother-in-law and his wife and the mother and father of that child, they all went to some group counselling together. And they were very, very well looked after by a trauma counsellor in Sydney. And I'd have to say that while I don't think you ever get over that, I think they were able to cry and to be angry and to be in pain and to realise that it's really those moments where you see that, you know, we often say to err is human and to forgive is divine. Well, if ever I needed to see God in action, those parents reaching out to that man and his wife. And, you know, I can't say that everything's perfect, but I can say that they have been somewhat reconciled, well, very reconciled with each other. And they've said, look, it was an accident. We wish it hadn't happened. But that's really an an act of God. I, I need no further evidence that there is a God when human beings can go through those sort of experience and want to come back to offer forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. And what strikes me as you're talking is that it's somehow we mirror back what God might be because the mystery we can't ever explain or really, I think, understand is it's just the futility of it. You know, the futility of, you know, I know this sounds trite, but in the, when I think of your sister Tracy, or I think of the song Fiddler in the Roof, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Like, you know, just a little insignificant, like one more second on the road and Tracy would have been okay. Or mm. I remember a case of a woman here in Dublin and literally she walked under a tree and just at that split second the tree fell and killed mm. her. Like, mm. there's a part of you that wants to say, ah, oh, really, like, just could anything not have been done to mm. stop that? Mm. And it does leave you with, the abyss of mystery. Mm. that, And yet, as you say, out of it, the only answer that comes is how people rise through it and mm. go through it and, and learn to love and be grateful through it. Oh, well, I have two reflections there, Pat. One is that um, Tevye's theology in Fiddler on the Roof is pretty nasty God because um, you did everything to me. And, and it's actually pretty classic Jewish theology, I have to say, with all great respect to our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's Job's theology. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Well, the problem with that is that the Lord doesn't deal in pain and death and disease and suffering. God is light. In him there is no darkness, 1 John 1, 5. And and that's repeated. And this is the heart of Jesus. Jesus didn't inflict pain and suffering on people. He didn't send plagues. He didn't send a flood because, you know, Nazareth rejected him. The nasties is to the pigs. And I feel sorry for the pigs. They're sent off the cliff at one stage. That was a bit nasty, but they were pigs after all. But whatever of that, it's where we can let go of some part of that Jewish theology where God has set up all the nasty things as well because we don't believe it. We say God permits evil to be in the world, but that's different to say God's sending evil. I'm not letting God off the hook on permitting evil in the world, but that is vastly different to saying God's sitting and sending it to us. So God sent that branch or God made that man leave at that time when the child was playing behind the car or 
God sent that car accident for my sister. I just, I can't believe in that God. I don't, and I can't reconcile that God with Jesus Christ. And I'm a Christian, so Jesus is the definitive face of God for the world. That's the first thing. And the second one is the family who were able to be reconciled and forgive each other. That's not cheap grace. They had to work through their own pain, their own suffering. They also had to realize that they could stay resentful of that man for the rest of their lives. And many people would be justified, would think they're utterly justified in that, even though it was an accident. But actually, they realized they would not heal because of that resentment, that they weren't actually, while they were doing something magnificent for him, they were doing something equally important for them. And that's hard grace. That is amazing grace because grace never asks us to run away from our pain and our fears grace asks us to confront it but not on our own it's with the accompaniment of the father the son and the spirit and with the community of those who love us because that's how god cares for us and that sort of theology i think is incredibly hopeful and i found incredibly helpful